You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, let me know. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Are you not entertained? I don't know who you are. Why so sick? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's denying Call me Mr. Boy's best friend is his mother. You have no style. You can bark all day, little dog. Everyone! Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Hope everybody had a great week and happy Halloween if you're listening to this on release day. Two Sentence Movie Reviews of Movies I Saw in a Movie Theater is back and this week I saw Dune, Last Night in Soho, and Antlers. Firstly, Dune. Normally when I see a film based on a book, I try and read it and become acquainted with the world beforehand. This time I decided to shake it up a little bit and do the opposite. I knew next to nothing about the world of Dune before seeing this film, other than that Sam Worms were a thing. That's all I really knew. With that in mind, I will say that this film world builds incredibly well, and that's all it really does for about two and a half hours. I can't help but feel like I only saw like half of a movie, which of course was the intention for the film. There's going to be at least one more. I went with two friends who were familiar with the book and who had read the book, and they seemed pretty happy with the adaptation. So I'm going to go ahead and say fans of the book are going to be happy with whatever percentage of the book this movie was. People going in blind like I did, I guess consider it an investment. It's 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 half a movie. That's That's what it is. It's half a movie. Then there's Last Night in Soho, which is about a young fashion student whom each night has visions of a woman 60 years prior whom used to live in her room. This is directed by Edgar Wright, whom I love. And this movie was the supernatural slasher period piece of my dreams. It's scary, it's visually stunning, and the soundtrack is perfection. This is a must-see in theaters for sure. Lastly, Antlers, which is a slow burner horror movie with one of the creepiest duos of little kids I've seen in a film in a long time. It takes most of the movie to get scary, but when it does, it's pretty good. Not necessarily a theater movie, but there's some good jump scares in it. It's fine. It's fine. Now, on to this week's topic. This week, we're covering the most meta horror film in the slasher franchise and the only killer never to have his or her portmanteau mentioned in its original franchise, Ghostface. Scream was my gateway horror film. The first scary movie I ever saw was this movie. I was about seven, and when I saw Drew Barrymore's gutted character hanging from the tree, I began questioning the quality of parenting I was receiving because holy shit, that was an inappropriate age to watch that. And since my life givers listen to this podcast, thank you for my high quality upbringing and my basically unlimited access to media, as long as it wasn't a video game and there was nothing horny in it. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime. Hello? Why don't you want to talk to me? Who is this? You tell me your name, I'll tell you mine. (laughs) I don't think so. What's that noise? Popcorn. You making popcorn? Uh Uh-huh. I only eat popcorn at the movies. Well, I'm getting ready to watch a video. Really? What? 
Oh, just some scary movie. You like scary movies? Uh-huh. What's your favorite scary movie? Uh, I don't know. You have to have a favorite. What comes to mind? Um, Halloween. You know, the one with the guy in the white mask who walks around and stalks babysitters? Yeah. What's yours? Guess. Um, Nightmare on Elm Street. Is that the one where the guy had knives for fingers? Yeah, Freddy Krueger. Freddy, that's right. I like that movie. It was scary. Well, well, the first one was, but the rest sucked. You never told me your name. Why do you want to know my name? I want to know who I'm looking at. What did you say? I want to know who I'm talking to. That's not what you said. What do you think I said? Inspirations for what would eventually become Scream didn't begin with the cinematic slashers it would one day extensively reference. Its creative spark initially came from a very real serial killer. Struggling actor and screenwriter Kevin Williamson spent much of March 1994 obsessed with a trial regarding a string of murders that had shaken the college town of Gainesville, Florida four years earlier. Danny Rowling, a transient with a history of violence, had killed five people there over the course of three days in 1990. His victims had all been young people between the ages of 17 to 23 and were all students of the local colleges. The murders caused a media frenzy, and the students that chose to remain in town despite the very present danger took to altering their daily routines and sleeping in large groups to avoid becoming a victim of the man whom would become known as the Gainesville Ripper. While investigating the murders, detectives noticed similarities between these five murders in Florida to that of a triple homicide committed in Shreveport, Louisiana the previous November. In several of the murder scenes, the bodies had been posed, similar tape residue was found on the victims, and vinegar was used to clean the bodies. Soon after the lead detective in Florida visited Shreveport, a local woman called Crime Stoppers, urging them to look into a local man by the name of Danny Rowling. Rowling was eventually tied to the murders, charged for the murders, tried and found guilty on April 20th, 1994. He was executed in 2006. Williamson was haunted by the details of Rowling's murders, especially after finding an open window in the place where he was staying. This fear inspired him to write an 18-page treatment about a young woman alone in a house who was taunted over the phone and then attacked by a masked killer. Struggling to make ends meet, Williamson would soon lock himself away in Palm Springs to write the script for a film he called Scary Movie. He hoped that this movie would make him some quick cash. Over the course of three days, Williamson would develop a full-length script, as well as two separate five-page outlines for potential sequels, aptly named Scary Movie 2 and Scary Movie 3. He hoped to further entice buyers with the potential for a franchise. Williamson would later say he wrote a film he would want to watch, one born out of his lifelong love of the horror genre, and listened to the Halloween film soundtrack as he wrote. In June 1995, William brought the scary movie script to his agent, who put it out for sale. His agent warned him that the level of violence and gore in the script would make it quote-unquote impossible to sell. Well, the script went on sale on a Friday, and by the end of the weekend, there was a bidding war for scary movie. The script would eventually be purchased by Miramax and released under their label Dimension Films, whom had Williamson toned down or removed some of the gnarlier, gorier content. However, once a certain horror master by the name of Wes Craven was secured as director, he brought much of those scenes back in. 
Williamson got $400,000 for his script, plus a contract for two sequels and a possible fourth unrelated film. Speaking of Wes Craven, he had read the script before he had become involved in the production and considered convincing a studio to buy it for him to direct. However, by the time Craven read the script, it had already been sold. Bob Weinstein, a.k.a. the other Weinstein in charge of Miramax at the time, approached Craven in the early days of getting the film made because, well, he's Wes freaking Craven. By the time Weinstein reached out, however, Craven was busy developing a remake of The Haunting and was actually considering distancing himself from the horror genre altogether. He was growing tired of the misogyny that ran rampant in the modern form of the franchise. In fact, A Nightmare on Elm Street, at least his one, worked very hard to reverse the trope of the helpless women and all of that jazz. As such, the first several times he was approached to direct Scream, Craven passed. That was until the haunting fell apart and freed up his schedule. The biggest turning point for Craven was when Drew Barrymore, who was a huge star at the time, had signed on to the film. When Craven heard an established actress wanted to be involved, he reasoned that Scary Movie might be a different project than anything he'd ever done before and contacted Weinstein. He was in. Think about most scary movies you've seen when they were new. How many well-known actors were in it at that time? Maybe that one guy on that TV show that got canceled who now plays the dad to an unknown actor in the horror film. Maybe that guy. Or if it was post the Bernie Madoff scandal, Kevin Bacon. He's in a lot of weird horror movies for some reason. Horror movies for decades have been training grounds for unknown actors, including Kevin Bacon. He was one of his first films was Friday the 13th. They are by and large made on the cheap making unknown talent, a.k.a. cheap talent, the preferred way to go. Audiences typically don't go to see scary movies because of who's in them anyway. They go to be scared, so why spend money on spendy actors? Well, Scream, a.k.a. Scary Movie, changed that. Drew Barrymore was originally cast as Sidney Prescott, who's the final girl of the film, for lack of a better term. Barrymore would end up playing Casey, however, when her availability became drastically reduced. Instead, the role of Sydney was inhabited by Nev Campbell, whom was best known for her role on the uber-popular TV show at the time, Party of Five, and of course, having just starred in the recent cult classic, The Craft. This film would give her her first leading role. Speaking of people on super popular TV shows, Courtney Cox was cast to play the never-take-no-for-an-answer reporter Gail Weathers. Cox was on basically the biggest TV show in the U.S. at the time, Friends, and took the role to offset the funnier Monica character she played on the show. Skeet Ulrich was hired as Sidney's boyfriend, in part due to his resemblance to Johnny Depp from A Nightmare on Elm Street. He had also just come off the craft. Other relatively known actors rounding other casts included David Arquette, Matthew Lillard, The Fonz, a.k.a. Henry Winkler, and Rose McGowan. The voice of Ghostface is Roger L. Jackson, who was present on set during filming, providing the dialogue to the actors on the day instead of recording them later on and having, like, the script supervisor read them off screen on set. But Roger wasn't hanging out with the cast between takes, mind you. He was hidden in the shadows by the crew, so he remained a faceless menace to the cast throughout production on all of the films. 
KNBFX was responsible for all the blood and guts featured in the film, which included 50 gallons of fake blood. They were also the ones tasked with figuring out what Ghostface would look like. In the script, the killer is only described as a masked killer, so Sky was pretty much the limit. While location scouting, Craven's producing partner and eventual head producer of the Scream franchise, Marianne Maddalena, discovered a ghost face mask hanging from a post inside the house previously used for the film Shadow of a Doubt, which was in the same neighborhood as the house that would be used for the characters of Dewey and Tatum in the film. Craven wanted to use that exact mask, but it was copyright owned by costume company Funworld. KNB developed multiple sketch designs varying from deformed faces to monstrous mugs riddled with fangs. Craven didn't like any of them, like he liked the ghost face design, so he had KNB develop a mask based on it, with enough differences to avoid any claim of copyright. The team developed several molds based on that mask, but none of them were as good as the original. Desperate to use the design, Craven finally convinced Miramax to approach Funworld and gained permission to use the mask in the film. Little did they know, they'd start making bank on that mask for years and years to come. Filming took place over eight weeks from April to June 1996. Arguments ensued, as they usually did, between the Weinsteins and Craven as to where the film should be shot. The Weinsteins wanted Vancouver because it was cheaper, but Craven wanted the film to be shot in the U.S. to give it a truly Americana look. Scouts were sent out hither and thither, and eventually they landed on a place called Sonoma County, which just so happens to be where I'm from. More specifically, they chose Santa Rosa, Healdsburg, and Tamales Bay. Various locations throughout the county were used, but one that wasn't was Santa Rosa High School. The school board insisted on seeing the script before agreeing to let filmmakers shoot there, which they let them do. They let them read the script, and the school board immediately objected to the violence and, of course, the murder of the principal, which was present in the script. Local newspapers, which means it was probably the Press Democrat, because there's really only one major newspaper for the county, criticized the project, and pissed-off parents objected to such a film taking place at their children's school. Comparisons were made between film violence and the kidnap and murder of local girl Polly class three years prior, which had left the entire county reeling. Stuff like that doesn't happen there, which, you know, is kind of the point of all horror movies. It could never happen here. The producers received support from the school students who wouldn't want their high school to be, like, the setting for a horror movie, that sounds amazing. And some local residents were supportive as well, who recognized that economic benefits would be generated by the film's presence. The dispute resulted in a three-hour debate scheduled for April 16th, one day after filming was set to begin. Unwilling to let this snafu delay his production, Craven began filming as scheduled. He started with the opening scene of the film, which is 80% just Barry Murr on screen at her house, and that scene took like five days to shoot, so it killed some time. In the end, Santa Rosa High School was not used and the production was forced to find another location for the school, which ended up not being a school at all, but the Sonoma Community Center, which was southeast of Santa Rosa. Even with production underway, Bob Weinstein and Craven continued to fight. Weinstein didn't think that the ghost face mask was scary enough and at one point even considered replacing Craven as director. That was until Craven assembled the first 13 minutes of the film, showing that he knew how to do his job, and when Ghostface was wreaking havoc, he was actually scary, and Weinstein let him keep his job. 
The third and final act of the film is over 40 minutes long and is set at a house party. It was shot at a vacant property in Tamales over 21 nights, which is now an Airbnb the marketing department of the fifth film is currently using to hype up the next film in the franchise. The scene, known by its name, Scene 118, was considered the most difficult to shoot as it took place entirely in one location and featured multiple character deaths and important plot developments. The actors spent weeks undertaking intensely taxing scenes, both emotionally and physically, while coated in fake blood and the like. But, oops. Cinematographer Mark Irwin was fired during filming of Screen's finale a week before wrap. When looking at the dailies, which is the footage shot from a prior day, Craven found that nearly all of the footage was too dark and out of focus, meaning it was completely unusable. The producers fired him and replaced him with Peter Deming. But what is Scream even about, though? I'm so glad you asked. Nearly a year after her mother was violently murdered by her lover Cotton Weary, Sydney Prescott must now grapple with an onset of press as her classmate Casey and her boyfriend were violently murdered. The press descends on the small town of Woodsboro, including Gail Weathers, whom is planning and publishing a book about Maureen Prescott's murder that would cast doubt on Cotton's guilt and label Sydney a liar. Sydney was the star witness in her mother's murder case. Soon, Sydney and several others are stalked by a mysterious man on the phone whom asks them if they like scary movies before threatening them. One of her friends, Randy, tells her the rules of scary movies to survive this ordeal. Number one, you may not survive the movie if you have sex. Number two, if you drink or do drugs, you're screwed. Or three, if you say, I'll be right back, hello, or who's there, you donezo. As the police chase down leads and the body count piles up, some begin to doubt if Cotton was actually responsible for Marine Prescott's death. School is suspended in the wake of the murders, so naturally the children's throw a big-ass party. There, the killer begins picking off the revelers one by one. Most of them end up leaving the party, hearing news of their principal's murder, and want to go see him hanging off like the football goalpost before the police show up. This leaves only Sydney, Billy... Randy, whom is assaulted by the killers, Stu, and Gail's cameraman Kenny, the latter of whom dies a violent murder death. Gail had tried to infiltrate the party to cover it on the news. It is soon revealed that Stu and Billy have been responsible for the murders, two people embodying the one ghost face visage. Billy and Stu discuss their plan to kill Sydney and pin the entire murder spree on her father, whom they have taken hostage. The pair also reveal that they murdered her mother and framed Cotton for it, as Maureen was having an affair with Billy's father as well. Gail eventually intervenes, and Sydney knocks out Billy with an umbrella and drops a television set on Stu's head, killing him. Billy then awakens and attacks Sydney, but Gail shoots him. Randy is revealed to be wounded, but still alive, and lets them know that the killer always resurfaces for one last scare. Sydney takes the gun and shoots Billy in the head, killing him right out. No jump scares this time. Scream is ablaze with horror movie references, honestly just movie references in general, and Craven even snuck his feelings on A Nightmare on Elm Street sequels, with Drew Barrymore's character declaring that the sequels to A Nightmare on Elm Street all sucked. By the end of production, Scary Movie had been renamed Scream, and the filmmakers now found themselves screaming at the MPAA as they tried to balance gore and not getting an NC-17 rating. All in all, it took eight different cuts of the film to secure an R rating. 
Scream released in theaters on December 20th, 1996, so just in time for Jesus' birthday. Many were critical of that date, but Weinstein argued it was the perfect time because horror fans rarely get a Christmas present in the form of a new horror movie. When Scream's first weekend box office amounted to only $6 million, it was believed that this release date gamble had failed. But the following week, the box office increased, which is incredibly unusual for a horror film, and continued to do so in the following weeks. In the U.S. alone, Scream grossed $100 million. It also got big-time critical kudos. The film currently carries a 79% approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes, unheard of for a slasher movie. By making a hyper-aware meta-commentary about the genre, Scream breathed new life into the slasher franchise that had become more or less dead. While Scream played on many horror tropes, it was the second one that would send the franchise into the metaverse. Say what happened in that theater is a direct result of the movie itself. That is so moral majority. You can't blame real life violence on entertainment. What? what? Wait a second. Yes, you can. Don't, don't you even watch the movie? Yeah. Hello. The murderer was wearing a ghost mask, okay? Just like in the movie, it's directly responsible. No, it's not. Movies are not responsible for our actions. It's a classic case of life imitating art, imitating this life. This is not a hypothetical. It's not about art. I had biology with that girl. This is reality. Thank you. I agree with you. Let me tell you about reality, Mickey. I live through this, okay? Life is life. It doesn't imitate anything. Come on, Randy. With all due respect, the killer obviously patterned himself after two serial killers who have been immortalized on film. Thank you. Right. Are you suggesting that someone's trying to make a real-life sequel? Stab two? Who'd want to do that? Sequels suck. No, wow. Come on, man. Oh, please, please. By definition alone, they're inferior films. It's bullshit generalization. Many sequels have surpassed their original. Oh, yeah? Name one. Yeah. Aliens, far better than the first. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, there's no accounting for taste. Thank you, Ridley Scott rules. Name another. No. <laughs> Aliens is a classic, okay? Get away from her, you bitch. I believe the line is stay away from her, you bitch. It's film class, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Gotcha. Whatever, you know what I mean. Another. T2. Mm. You better hard on for Cameron. Big one. <laughs> but wait a second. The first Terminator is historical. Yeah. Sarah Connor. Yes. <laughs> Wait, all right, all right, all right, okay. House two, the second story. So the biggest difference between Scream and the majority of the films in the other franchises that we covered is that here there isn't just one villain. In every sequel, a new individual or individuals takes up the mantle of Ghostface, and with each iteration, the killer gets a bit more cunning, just like in a quote-unquote real horror movie. The second film, Scream 2, was based off of the treatment Williamson had written during his writing of the first script. The film would see Sidney going to college, where a copycat would begin picking off her classmates. In March 1997, Miramax slash Dimension greenlit the sequel, and Williamson set to work developing four possible murderers as the culprits. When he finished the script and sent it to the production, it somehow got leaked onto the internet, revealing the identity of the killers and, of course, the plot. The film had already started shooting, 
and this resulted in the production continuing to film with only a partial script while Williamson changed pretty much everything, including the identities of the film's killers. To keep this from happening again, the actors involved in the final scenes of the film weren't given the pages until a couple of weeks before those sequences would be shot. The killer's identity was only revealed on the day of shooting those scenes, so they did not get those script pages until the day of shooting that scene. So all of that stuff, it's a very talky scene. They had to learn that on the day, which is kind of impressive when you watch it. The short production schedule in Scream 2 and his work on other projects meant that Williams' final script used for the film was all over the place, forcing Wes Craven himself to write and redevelop certain scenes literally as they were being filmed. The script pages were also printed onto uncopyable paper, which was destroyed after filming of the scenes were complete. Scream 2 became the first, and definitely not the last, motion picture to be severely affected by a major internet leak. Filming had begun in mid-June 1997 and shot in Atlanta, Georgia, as well as Los Angeles. When the leak happened, the film went into a full lockdown with everybody signing crazy NDAs, non-disclosure agreements, just to make sure absolutely no one was going to leak this movie again. The major addition to the Scream franchise that was added in Scream 2 is the addition of the film within a film Stab and the ensuing franchise within a franchise that happens after this. Stab is based on the prior film's murders, as well as Gail's book and the opening scene of Scream 2 actually features a parody of the opening scene of the first Scream movie. This franchise literally starts folding in on itself in a super meta dog pile that only increases with each film. Randy is once again around to give us the sequel rules. So, how do you survive a horror sequel? Well, this time, the body count is always bigger, the death scenes are always much more elaborate, with more blood and gore. Those are the first two rules. The third rule in the film is interrupted by Dewey, but a trailer reveals that the third rule was supposed to be never ever under any circumstances assume the killer is dead. This referenced Randy's last line in the first Scream movie, which stated that a killer always comes back to life for one last scare. It was left out intentionally as an inside joke with the crew. The film takes place two years after the events of the first and sees Sydney attending Windsor College in Cincinnati, Ohio with Randy. Meanwhile, Gail Weathers' best-selling book on Sydney's life has now been made into a major motion picture. When two college students are killed in a theater while watching a preview of the film, Sydney soon realizes that history is repeating itself once more. Deputy Dewey comes to town to try and protect Sydney. Scream 2 released on December 12th, 1997, less than a year after the first film released. Despite its rampant issues with script and having to submit nine different cuts to the MPAA to get an R rating, Scream 2, despite the fact that it opened a week before Titanic, was the highest grossing film of 1997 and is currently the third highest grossing slasher film of all time behind Scream. So, of course, a third one wasn't far behind. The Weinsteins approached Williamson to write a third screen film, but his commitment to other projects, including the first I Know What You Did Last Summer, which he'd written, meant that he was too busy to write this film. Instead, he gave the next writers a 20 to 30 page guidebook as to what to do next. The film would involve the return of Ghostface to the fictional town of Woodsboro, where the next film in the Stab series was being shot. 
the Weinsteins hired Aaron Kruger to get the job done. During the development of the film, the Columbine Massacre had occurred, which, if you don't know, was the first major school shooting in the United States, which occurred in April 1999. In the aftermath, many outlets began questioning how much of a role media, specifically violent video games and movies, had on the brains of the youths. As a result, the writer of Scream 3 found himself walking on eggshells to ensure the film would not cause further controversy. The prior two films had already been fingered for causing violent behavior. Eager to avoid further controversy, Williams's notes were largely discarded, and instead, Kruger decided to focus more on the comedic elements of the series, significantly reducing the violence in the process. The setting of the film was changed from Woodsboro to Tinseltown, as Kruger wanted the characters moving on to bigger places, not reverting back to the original film. Shooting for Scream 3 took place in Los Angeles over the summer of 1999, but the ending would end up being reshot in January 2000 after it was decided that the original ending was unsatisfactory. In Scream 2, the character of Randy was controversially killed, but he left behind a VHS tape to help Sidney and the other surviving Woodsboro gang. On the tape, he describes the rules for a horror trilogy. The rules are, you've got a killer who's going to be superhuman. Stabbing him won't work, shooting him won't work. Basically, in the third one, you got to cryogenically freeze his head, decapitate him, or blow him up. Anyone, including the main character, can die. And lastly, the past will come back to bite you in the ass. Whatever you think you know about the past, forget it. The past is not at rest. Any sins you think were committed in the past are about to break out and destroy you. Scream 3 is the franchise at its most meta, with much of the film's plot circulating around Stab 3, Return to Woodsboro, and the actors betraying the film world movie versions, as well as the original surviving cast. Instead of a horror film replicating the events in the real world of the film, confusing enough for you, this time the killer in the real world is emulating the plot of Stab 3, which hasn't even been shot yet. They're currently shooting the film. The killer is killing the cast in the order that they die in the film. So they know who's getting killed and when. Well, kind of. Because there are three different versions of the script. This was done to prevent the script from leaking onto the internet. You know, like what happened to Scream 2. Like, it's meta, guys. Layers on layers on layers. In the film, Sydney discovers her mother's secret past as a bit part actress in Hollywood before she was born, and once again, Maureen's off-screen choices drive the plot. Throughout the series, this character has been slut-shamed and her promiscuity is blamed for events in some way in all three films. It motivates all three groups of killers in each film. In fact, everything in the original trilogy goes back to Maureen and the secret life she left behind in Hollywood. It is also revealed that there has been a mastermind behind all three series of killings this entire time. No spoilers on the sequels. Scream 3 released on February 3rd, 2000, and while it did okay-ish at the box office, it was definitely less successful than the first two. It tanked critically, the characters just weren't as strong in this film, and critics lambasted the reliance on horror cliches instead of the parodying of them in this film. The opening scene, for example, features a scantily clad, big boob blonde, fresh out of the shower, clumsily running from the killer. 
There's also the addition of a one-off spooky supernatural dream that feels super out of place, which was not present in any prior Scream film, and is also a pretty big cliche of the genre. Maureen's ghost, quote-unquote, appears to Sydney in a dream. The prior Scream films were all firmly grounded in the real world, and this deviated from that in a big way, even though it was a dream. Then, of course, when everything came out about Harvey Weinstein in 2017, Scream 3 found itself being re-examined due to its parallels to the real world. Now, if you lived under a rock back then, Harvey was accused of sexual assault, sexual abuse, abuse of power, and just all around being a ball of human slime. He was convicted of many of the crimes, and he's currently serving most of, if not the rest of, his life in prison. Scream 3 features a studio head by the name of John Milton, who uses the casting couch to pressure women into sleeping with him to get roles in films. In 2020, Adam White, a culture writer for The Independent, wrote that the film was, quote, an angry indictment of sexual misconduct in Hollywood, predatory men, and the casting couch. He noted several instances of, quote-unquote, transactional sex within the film, including the characters of Jennifer and Angelina, both making references to having had sex with either the producer or director in order to secure roles in Stab 3. Also, the producer's house, which is where the climax takes place, is super creepy with like secret passageways and two-way mirrored glass galore. It's like with the hindsight, it's so creepy. Even Carrie Fisher, whom has a cameo in the film as a lookalike of herself, claims that the part that made her actual self famous, Princess Leia in the Star Wars franchise, went to, quote, the one who slept with George Lucas. So yeah, this film has some dark undertones to it now. As we all know, Harvey Weinstein ruins everything. Despite all of that, the original Scream trilogy is a time capsule of late 90s, early 2000s fabulousness, and to this day continues to thrill audiences and attract fans the world over. The ghost face mask has become one of the most classic iconographies of the slasher genre, and of course, was parodied in films like the ironically named Scary Movie franchise. So, we've got a nice, neat little trilogy. Certainly, people wouldn't want to make more of these. The story's over, right? She slammed the door in my face and she said I was Rena's child and Rena was dead. And it struck me. What a good idea. So I watched her. I made a little home movie, a little, little family film. It seems Maureen, Mom, she really got around. Cotton was one thing. Everybody knew about that. But Billy's father? That was the key. Your boyfriend didn't like seeing his daddy in my film too much. He didn't like it at all. Once I supplied the motivation, all the kid needed was a few pointers. Have a partner to sell out in case you get caught, find someone to frame. It was like he was making a movie. You. This is all because of you. As we all know, reboots are all the rage these days, and the Scream franchise is no exception. In fact, it was one of the earlier ones to get the reboot treatment. Development for Scream 4 began in 2008, with Wes Craven returning to the director's chair. The film would take place 10 years after the events in Scream 3, and while there will have been no quote-unquote real-life ghostface murders, there have been numerous sequels to the film's film-within-a-film, film, Stab, that aren't based on Sydney's life. 
life. In fact, there's seven stab movies now. The film begins with a series of stab film openings masquerading as the opening of Scream 4. So you don't know actually when the film begins, which kind of works to its detriment because you stop getting invested in people and it's like, oh no, those are the ones you're supposed to care about. Scream 4 is also the first film in the franchise in which the name of the killer, Ghostface, is uttered. Craven wanted to use the endless sequels, the modern spew of remakes, film studios and directors as the butts of the parodies in this film. Williamson returned to screenwriting duties, expressing his desire to tell a story in which the audiences would really care about the characters, like they had with Sidney Prescott, whom survived the first three films, spoiler alert, and focus on them rather than the next kill, like the Saw franchise was known for at this time. In fact, two characters go on a rant about it in the opening scenes. Shooting took place in Ann Arbor, Michigan in the summer and fall of 2010. And I've got to say they did a pretty good, they found a pretty good replicant for the town square they used in the first film. I mean, I can tell because I'm from the place that the first square was, but I, it is a pretty good, it's a pretty good copy. I'll give them that. Of course, with a new film, there are a new set of rules. They are revealed by characters in the film club and are as such. One, don't fuck with the original. Two, the death scenes have to be way more extreme. Three, unexpected is the new cliche. Four, virgins can die now. Five, new versions are always 2.0, so the latest technology is always involved and integral to the plot. This means the killer may start filming the murders. Six, you have to have an opening sequence. They had three. And finally, if you want to survive in a modern-day horror movie, you pretty much have to be gay. Of course, that rule got broken in the most recent Halloween film. Scream 4 released on April 15th, 2011, and despite extensive promotion and hype for the film, it became the lowest-grossing film of the franchise. The Weinsteins said they were pleased with the lack of box office moolah. They were fine with what they made. Historically, the Weinsteins are screamy, shouty people. I very much doubt that was what was said behind closed doors. An anthology series aired on MTV called Scream from 2015 to 2016 and VH1 in 2019 and had nothing to do with the film franchise plot save for the usage of a similar looking mask. And now... 11 years after Scream 4, we're getting a fifth Scream movie that's just called Scream. I guess the Gen Zers don't like numbers on their films. Is that why executives have stopped numbering films? It's, it's really annoying. Despite several members of the original cast returning, including Courtney Cox, David Arquette, and Nev Campbell, this film is being marketed as a relaunch of the series and will be the first without Wes Craven at the helm as he passed away in 2015. Kevin Williamson is also not returning to write, so new blood all around in this film, save for the, some of the actors. It has been reported that this film will be less meta than the others, which has got me a little apprehensive because isn't that the whole point of the franchise is to kind of make a commentary on horror movies? The plot, as it's been revealed, is thus, quote, 25 years after a streak of brutal murders shocked the quiet town of Woodsboro, a new killer has donned the ghost face mask and begins targeting a group of teenagers to resurrect secrets from the town's deadly past. How many more secrets does this damn town have? My goodness. Filming was originally scheduled to begin in Wilmington, North Carolina in May 2020, but was delayed four months due to, you guessed it, COVID. 
filming wrapped on November 17th, 2020. Like for the previous films, multiple versions of the screenplay exists, and this time around, they even filmed some of the fake-out scenes. The film has been completed, reportedly, and is due to be released on January 14th, 2022. I am a little worried that it's releasing in January, as historically, that's the month movies are released in to hide the fact that they suck real hard. Scream lives on, with its combination of horror and humor enduring into the modern day. While nostalgia for the film is alive and well, and some would say at an all-time high, it won't be long until we find out what's been happening to the citizens of Woodsboro in the last 11 years. So, what's your favorite scary movie? Hello? It's happening. Three attacks so far. Do you have a gun? I'm Sydney Prescott, of course I have a gun. Something about this one just feels different. And that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media where I also post photos for each episode. At Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, at Tinsel underscore Factory on Twitter, on Facebook at The Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at TinselFactoryPod at gmail.com. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there, so good, please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast. That would be a huge help. In order to keep making the podcast, I've also set up a support page and a Venmo, the link of which you can find in the show notes. If you'd like to help out in any way, I'd very much appreciate it. I've also got merch. Check it out at the link in the show notes. Next month, we're trying something a little different. We're going back to history class and looking at some epic historical films and how they differ from the people and events they depict. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, that's a wrap.